bad, but that's reality. So you won't be asked on your test. When you go into spinal flexion, what happens to the sacrum? <clears throat> or maybe you will and you just all get it wrong. <laughs> um, so what I did a little bit different than the notes that are on D2L is that I had exercise treatment was the end of the last lecture that we're going to go over. And so I thought since we're going to do examination and treatment today, I'll go through all exam stuff and then we'll talk about treatment stuff after we do exams since that would be sort of the logical order related to the clinical perspective. So we're going to start off with the second lecture at the beginning and then introduce the exercise, exercise material that was at the end of the old lecture as we go after the exam portion. So we're going to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. Um, so SIJ dysfunction. In your history, it's going to be usually some sort of activity or traumatic event um, where they had a sudden onset of pain <coughs> rate of the PSIS, either unilateral or bilateral. Um, unilateral sports or unilateral loading are most common, um, so kicking and throwing. And throwing, they're talking about when you sort of like you're throwing a baseball as you land, you repetitively land on the same leg, so that's why that's a unilateral sport if you're throwing a baseball. Football is obviously a little bit different. Um, and you can have a history of trauma between basically half the folks that have sacroiliac pain. Um, I had a patient last week who was a high school foot, no, excuse me, high school soccer player, and she was playing offense. And she didn't, I didn't understand her whole story correctly, but essentially she went to kick the ball, and the goalkeeper had the ball in her hands, and the goalkeeper kind of rolled and tackled her down, um, and she felt a pop and had immediate pain in her SI. And then she finally got her starting position back, so she didn't want to come off the field, so she didn't tell her coach that she was hurt. And then 15 minutes later in the game, she tackled a girl and then felt another pop and had pain on the other side. Um, and then took herself out of the game. And after the game, couldn't sit like on a chair because of pain bilaterally in her butt. Um, and so I saw her like four, let's see, she hurt at Friday, I saw her on Wednesday, so I saw her five days after. Um, and when I saw her, she came into the, when I saw her in the waiting room, she was like this. And so she was only sitting on one side. She still was in pain from sitting on that side, but she wasn't even about to be sit level because she had too much pain sitting on the other side. Um, she, would, she would stand on her right like the same. Or she'd be like waited like this, and I tried to get her to walk, and she was limping when she was walking. So she was really acute. Um, but she said she was vastly improved from over the weekend. Um, and over the weekend, she was showing me how she would sleep, and there was this weird sort of cockeyed position that she was trying to sleep in. And she would move around. She said she could sleep 20 minutes, then she'd get up and try and walk, and then back and forth. So she wasn't too happy, but she was happy because she was getting better. So, And she was trying to play soccer that night, obviously. Um, and then pregnant females or ladies that have just had babies are very common to have sacroiliac or pelvic problems. So these are things in your history that you're going to hear um, related to sacroiliac pain. Again, the characteristics. So this is a combination of a couple things. Even though it says this, I added a couple other ones in there. So when you think it's SI versus lumbar spine versus hip because these are so anatomically close together, um, but you pain not in the lumbar region and or below L5. Now obviously you can have pain below L5 that is referred or radicular from the lumbar spine. 
Um, so you're going to have to sort of figure that out through your screening test of the lumbar area. Pain in the region of PSIS, that's the most common thing. Folks have sacroiliac pain. I always say when they have back pain, put a finger on it. If they point to PSIS, then I start to think sacroiliac joint. And lots of times they do. Sometimes it's sacroiliac, sometimes it's not. Um, it can be lumbar pain as well, but that's um, pretty common. Pain that radiates to the groin area, so adductor muscles anterior, which is also common for hip pathologies. So this can be um, indicative of SI problems or hip problems, femoral acetabular problems. So you want to look at the hip joint, which obviously we'll talk about next topic. No centralization or peripheralization with movement. So there isn't um, <coughs> nerve root compression in the sacroiliac area. There's obviously sacral nerve roots, but they come out higher up. Um, so that's not going to be peripheralization or centralization with movements. And then no signs of nerve root compression. Excuse me? I just heard mumble, sorry. How is the adductors work Relative to the pain referral? It's just a common area for where the pain refers, so just a referral pattern, it moves to that area. Um, correct, it's nothing to do with the muscles themselves, it's just a pain referral area. Or if, yeah, if you had pubic symphysis dysfunction, that could be associated as well. <clears throat> um, and then you're going to want to look at, going into the history, do these folks have habitual postures, habitual movements, do they have a job that's repetitive, do they work on an assembly line, or do they sit at their desk all day or something along those lines. Um, and these may give you some indication of how you're going to stress the SI joint. So through the evaluation, we're going to go through these things, some in more detail than others. So inspection, you want to see them do normal activities of daily living and then you want to see them do activities which they feel are limited to them. Sometimes you're going to have folks that have, like the girl that I was just talking about who had acute pain and she couldn't do anything of her activities of daily living, sitting, lying, walking, um, without pain. So it was, for me it was easy to do a, sort of an inspection and a functional exam on her because she couldn't do anything without problems. Whereas some folks, they may say, oh, my pain in my butt or my pain in my low back is only elicited when I'm running really fast downhill. So if you can somehow stimulate that, if you had a treadmill that you could figure out how to do that, if you had a, that you could run downhill or uphill, for example, but trying to elicit it to see what, how they're adapting and to see what bothers them. Um, because we obviously the person that only has pain when they're running downhill is going to be a far different treatment scheme than someone who has acute pain that can't sit on their butt cheeks bilaterally with equal weight bearing. Yep. Um, I'll talk about treatment plan when we go into the different okay. assessment techniques later. Um, but my assessment was it was definitely related to sacred leg joint, and I'll talk about what I did as far as bony anatomy and landmarks and stuff, um, sort of as we go throughout the lecture today. So good question. I'll, I'll get to it as we go through. Posture exam is going to be um, important, just like it is in the lumbar spine. It's not really a whole lot different. You're going to be looking at all the same landmarks, essentially. Um, the shape of the area. Muscle spasm, those types of things. Skin, is there any skin involvement? Is there erythema? Is there bruising? Was there direct contact? Um, you normally wouldn't do skin rolling over that person's behind. Um, 
<clears throat> but if you're trying to look at the lumbar spine, you may. And they may or may not have assistive devices. There are, we'll talk about um, support belts that you can get for the sacroiliac joint. Um, they may have one of those, or they may be trying something there, like a lumbar support that they put down lower to try and provide some stability if they found that that was relieving them. But generally, they wouldn't have an assistive device like a, a crutch or a cane or anything like that. And then your active range of motion from the functional exam perspective, you're just going to go through active range of motion just like you did in the lumbar spine. Um, if it's appropriate, you're going to provide overpressure. And I would probably do spinal flexion in both standing and seated to see if there were differences, um, which we talked about doing in the lumbar spine. So really, the active range of motion is the same as the total range of motion related to the lumbar spine exam that we did. Um, because you're trying to stress a very similar proximity anatomical location. And then you want to go through active range that stress the SI joints, and this is basically going to be all motions at the hip. Um, <clears throat> and then you can look at muscle imbalances relative to the length or strength of the muscles that re may realign the pelvis, but these essentially work across the hips. So your hip flexors and internal rotators can anteriorly tilt the innominate. Or so if they don't move the hip, they're going to move the pelvis. And because of their action on the pelvis, you're going to want to assess hip muscle activity, um, essentially all your hip muscles. So your hip flexors and internal rotators, your hip extensors and external rotators can act as posterior tilters of the innominate. So you want to assess the, um, just the active range of motion of those different ranges of motion or the different movements at the hip, and then specifically thinking about how does that act on the pelvis. So hip abduction and ad well, hip adduction specifically is not mentioned here, um, and that's because of its attachment to the pubic symphysis, which can affect the pelvis alignment anteriorly. Uh, Interresisted isometrics. So that we're trying to get some sort of contraction of muscles which act or have influence over the sacroiliac joint and or pubic symphysis. <laughs> now we know that none, no muscles specifically act to move the sacrum, but lots of muscles act across the sacrum or can have an influence on the sacrum. Um, or the pubic symphysis where you actually have muscles that attach to that area um, that can affect it, although again you're not trying to move the, move the pubic symphysis, but it's generally a stable attachment site with it, which if it becomes unstable or painful can cause symptom reproduction. So spinal flexion using your abdominal muscles can stress the pubic symphysis because that's obviously um, an attachment site for those muscles. Hip flexion, you can have iliacus to stress the SI. Hip abduction, glutamine can stress the SI. Um, hip adduction, so your adductor tubercle um, in on the pubic symphysis can stress that area. And then hip extension, um, glute max can stress the SI. So you can see how when we're doing sacroiliac <coughs> examination, we're talking a lot about movements of the spine and of the hip because they're one, there isn't a whole lot of movement at the sacroiliac joint, and two, because of their anatomical location. Um, <coughs> so why don't I now just do a quick screen of range of motion and <coughs> um, resisted isometrics of these different various muscles so you guys can put a couple things together in your head before I move forward. <coughs> Volunteer. <coughs> 